0: Well, please open or swipe in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. We are in this series, as I mentioned uh, in my prayer, through the book of Hebrews uh, with the subtitle Jesus is Greater. Hebrews is toward the end of your New Testament, and so we've got uh, some of the kids today. I hope, kids, you have a Bible and that you bring it on, really, every Sunday. I know your kids' classes would love it, especially if you're reading. Uh, Bring those Bibles and and use them, Uh, but grown-ups, you bring them as well. Uh, But you'll see on the screen where Hebrews is located, kind of sandwiched there uh, between um, Philemon and the book of James, again, toward the end of the New Testament. And we're in chapter 6, verses 4 through 12 today. And if you would follow along as I read those verses. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. It's worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me quote two scholars that I read in my study this week. It is no exaggeration to designate the passage we now consider as one of the most controversial in the book of Hebrews, indeed one of the most disputed in the entire New Testament. And then another, these are some of the most difficult verses in the entire book, the most controversial and most debated So we have one of the most controversial, one of the most disputed, some of the most difficult, and most debated. And we've got like 20 minutes or a little bit more. We started late. By the way, I keep forgetting to remind us that we we want to start at 10. And so we that are up front need to start on time, but but we want you to be here for that. So just as a reminder, try to Try to come a little before 10, you know, use it as an excuse to get a coffee back there, but 10 o'clock anyhow. But we will, we will try not to be too much longer. We all are waiting for lunch, so that's, uh, that's in us too. Not only is this passage controversial, disputed, difficult, debated, I agree with those scholars, it's also very sobering. It, it's dealing with the, the serious danger of apostasy. So let's, let's talk for a moment about that word. And so you see in the title of today's message, the serious danger of apostasy, to be an apostate. Such a strong church word, if you will. Um, at a basic level, an apostate, right, is simply one who abandons a belief, a religious belief or a principle, okay? So, so it could kind of be very generic, but but in the Christian life, we're we're a Christian church, and we we are looking at this book. We believe this is God's word, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation, and and this letter, it's a sermonic letter, as I keep mentioning, um, is God's revelation um, for us today. And and so this text, and we've actually seen it already. We'll see it again. There's these warning passages in this sermon, and this is one of those, and it deals with this topic of apostasy or what it means to be an apostate. So let me read a more technical or specific definition because we're not just talking about the abandonment of religious belief in general. Okay, so if you look on the screen, Michael Kruger, who I quote, he's a New Testament scholar in, the, um, in one of the Carolinas at a Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, he says this, an apostate is someone who once seemed, that's key, who once seemed to be a believer, but who later totally rejects Christ, turns away from sound teaching, and leaves the church. So that's what I mean, right? We need to make sure definitions are the same. Now, you may have a different thought about apostasy, but today, as I talk about it, and as we have this sermon title, I'm, I'm going off that definition, and I think, I think that's, that's right. And, and as I said, this is sobering. I, I was a youth pastor for almost 12 years, Soma now, we are in our 14th or 15th year. I came to know Jesus in youth group. And so maybe if you, you know, have been a Christian for a length of time as well, you maybe also can identify with people who once seemed to be believers. They went to camp, they went on missions trips. That's that's, something about youth group. Then as a youth pastor, they... They were part of the things. They were in leadership. They sang up front. They, you know, but later rejected Christ and turned away from the, the sound teaching of, of the word and, and left the church. And that's sobering. Now, let me just say it <laughs> like we just sang about God is in the business of calling prodigals home. And we don't know, right, who is an apostate. So I have people in mind. It's, that's what I'm getting at. As, as a pastor of our church, as a youth pastor for a lot of years, as someone in church and youth group, they have turned away. They might be apostates, and as I've been thinking and praying and working on this all week, and I'm going to get to this at the end, but I, I've been praying for some people by name, that they would not be apostate. In fact, that they would simply be in a season of, of having turned away, of, of you know, being prodigals, right? like Jesus tells the story, and, and, and that they would come back. And so until the end, right, and we don't know, we don't, we aren't God, we don't have omniscience, so we don't know who is. And we need to reserve and very much reserve judgment on these things. But the scriptures speak of this. The scriptures speak of this serious, sobering, scary, and weighty issue. And it is the hub of our our passage this morning. As I said, this is one of the warning passages now, last week, we actually kind of began this, this whole section. It began in chapter 5, verse 11. There, we looked at this, this confrontation against immaturity and then a challenge toward maturity. And so, uh, our author, whoever he was, was getting ready to say these sobering, serious things about apostasy, but first, he, he confronted them of their immaturity and challenged them to, to mature, but now he gets to this. Serious, the serious word. By the way, next Sunday, um, a friend of Soma's who's preached a few different times over the last year, Daniel Flores, he will be back and he will finish out chapter six. And um, it's, it's a much easier, lighter, happier kind of a text. And I'm glad he has that uh, as well. But but we have to deal with this today. Now, the scriptures make it clear, my conviction, I will admit, and there is debate, in the church, in capital C Church, maybe in lower C Church here, uh, but I my conviction is that true believers cannot lose their salvation. Those who have truly repented of their sin, who have been united to Christ, um, or put it another way, those who are truly saved, who have been born again, regenerated by God, have trusted in Christ, they will be saved always. They cannot unsave themselves or lose something. Um, I, I believe a principle of good Bible interpretation is that the more difficult texts need to be understood in light of clearer text. So, for example, Jesus said in John 5, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life.'" He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And then in John 10, 28, and this is one to memorize, John ten twenty eight, Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 38 and 39 said, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then a little bit later in Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 1 Corinthians 1, 6 through 8, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Pretty clear text, I think. The Lord Jesus himself saying, no one can snatch them away. So if salvation is his salvation, to give and his to hold, I'm going to trust that. And and I believe that is the teaching of the word of God, that true Christians are secure. Jesus won't let true Christians go. He can be trusted. It's his, and he will secure it and, and all of those things. But we come to a warning like this one, or like these words from 1 John chapter 2, 19. There, the apostle John says, they went out, speaking of some apostates, per my definition, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are that they all are not of us. So there's this recognition by John the Apostle there, and I think by our preacher-writer here, that there are some who give evidence of saving faith, but in the end, at some point, it's revealed they were not genuine. And we'll look at some more texts that speak of that here in a moment as well. Again, this is a description of apostasy, those who have left the church. And in leaving the church, the faith, right, the Lord, they've shown that they're not truly in the faith of the Lord in the first place. Again, as our definition says, they once seemed to be a believer. God's word is unified and doesn't contradict itself. And so we have to let clear text help interpret more difficult texts. And I think we have that going on here as well. But this is a warning in Hebrews. And it's not addressing Christians losing their faith because other passages, again, make it clear that genuine Christians can't lose something that wasn't theirs to begin with. It was God's to give. It was God's to save. God's to hold on to. So let me quote Michael Kruger God uses warning passages of apostasy to encourage his people to stay the course of faith. So as we read this passage, we should carefully ponder it, absorb it, learn from it as we reflect upon our own spiritual maturity. This text may seem like a detour, right, in in this theme of Jesus is greater and better, but really it's not. As we know, that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews that Christ is better, he's superior to the old covenant revelation, he's superior to anything else we might worship, love, or adore. And so this whole letter book functions as a warning against apostasy. It's calling people to Christ and saying, don't drift, don't give up, don't go chasing other things. Often it's the case that if we are concerned about these things, that gives evidence that we're, it's genuine in us, if, if we care, if we're concerned. And I think that's a good and healthy thing. So now, with all of that as introduction, let's look at this section, this warning section of Hebrews, and encounter this, as I'm calling it, serious danger of apostasy. And the author's going to do do this in two swaths, if you will. The first is a warning against apostasy, and then a comforting word of reassurance. And we need that, because this is heavy. It's sobering, all of those things. It's difficult. But we have this warning against apostasy, number one, and then number two, a comforting word of reassurance. So let's look first, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, at this warning against apostasy. Most of our time, by the way, will be in in these verses before we get to the, the comforting word of reassurance. So look back again at verses Four to six. For it is impossible. Now, by the way, our our writer, th- this phrase "it is impossible" he uses that phrase four times in in Hebrews. Here he, he's going to use it in uh, the text for next in next week's text, chapter six, verse eighteen, where he says that it is impossible for God to lie. In chapter ten, verse four, he's going to say it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin sins. And then in chapter eleven, verse six. He's going to say that without faith, it is impossible to please God. So he uses these words four times, and in all of them, it simply means something that cannot happen, okay? And so here, the phrase is saying something cannot happen. And and specifically here, if you kind of look at at the text again, look at verse 4, it is impossible. Then there's a string of descriptions, but jump to kind of the... um, The middle of, yeah, the second part of verse six. It is impossible. Skip over. Skip over. Skip over. To restore them again to repentance. That's what he's saying is impossible. It's impossible for certain ones to be restored again to repentance. And so, what's all the stuff in the middle? Um, What What are these descriptors of, of that person who? It's impossible. It's not possible to be restored to repentance. Well, it says they have once been enlightened. It says they've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. All those descriptors describe that it's impossible to be restored to repentance. Sure sounds like Christians, right? Once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. Come on. Again, each of these phrases definitely... Sounds like it's describing a Christian, and that's the point. That's the whole point of this. It, it's supposed to sound like someone who once was. And in fact, let me just jump ahead to this. Well, I'm I'm thinking of this. In Matthew 13, Jesus told one of his parables, sometimes called the parable of the seeds, sometimes the soils, parable of the soils, sometimes the parable of the sower told this story, and many of you will be familiar with it. A sower went out to sow, and he sowed, as as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured those seeds. Now listen to these next three verses. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and, and immediately they sprang up. Since they had no no depth of soil, but but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered. Then number three, other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and and choked them. And then, of course, the the final seed, or soil, rather. Other seeds fell on good soil, produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then this is Jesus' explanation. Back to the, the second set of seed. Verse 20, Matthew 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet, he has, she has no root in him or herself. And, and they endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Doesn't that sound like someone who gives evidence, who looks like they're genuine? But Jesus says, no. Time shows that, persecution shows in this case, they're not. They fall away. And some that's sown on thorns, this is the one who hears the word. So there's a evidence to a degree, there's, there's a, looks like genuineness, but the cares of the world, And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So some that falls away, some that proves unfruitful. Back to our text. Those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness, and then fall away. I don't believe genuine Christians. As we heard already, Jesus said, I I keep my own, I'm not going to lose anyone. God's faithful, he'll keep us to the end. But there are some who come in, but then they go out and they end up proving themselves to be apostate. So let's just briefly look at these descriptions. It says first, they, in verse four, were once enlightened. Now again, this speaks of an initial exposure to the gospel, to instruction in the Christian faith. Later in Hebrews 10.32, the author is going to encourage his hearers to remember and recall those earlier days of being enlightened. So there's a way to describe that. And you may remember what it was like for you when you were first enlightened with, with the truth. So People taste and, and see and, and respond. Secondly, it says they have tasted the heavenly gift. Well, the word taste here is just being used metaphorically. It's, it's being used to experience something. They've experienced the heavenly gift. We're not sure exactly what the heavenly gift is. Uh, it could speak of the blessings of the church community, and that's true for people. They taste and experience the gift that is God's people. Again, I just I have people in mind, and only the Lord knows. And I've prayed, God, may they just be prodigals, but they have been a part of Soma or other churches, and they've they've been enlightened, they've they've tasted, they've partaken, but they're gone now. So it could be that um, this could be a reference to the the people of Israel wandering after their deliverance from Egypt. Um, again, metaphorically, they tasted literally manna and uh, from heaven, right? That was a heavenly gift from God, and now maybe our writer is applying it. Um, in fact, the Apostle Paul, he uses this word kind of g- generically and generally to speak of simply the blessings of God that surround salvation. That's called uh, a gift, right? So maybe it's that, but they've nonetheless experienced this gift. Number three, verse four, it says, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. This is mysterious to me. Uh, To share means to participate in, to to have a close association with. Um, People can share in the Holy Spirit and what he's doing in a church. I I was sitting up here in one of the front rows. Um, I wanted to turn around this morning because, man, I just was loving our singing, you know, and loving... The music and I thought, am I the only one that's got a little bit of hair standing up? And you know, was that the spirit or was that just the drums? I don't know, right? But 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 we have these shared experiences, and and in a church, you know, and I don't mean to make light of gathered worship. It's it's a big deal, and and singing together. And there's more important experiences where where God's people together serve and 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 pray for people, and and, and God does miraculous things, and 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 so. Um, there, there's a, there could be that idea of sharing and participating in, having a close association with what the Spirit does in a church, seeing His benefits, His blessings on display. Um, there, there could be a sense as well where, where non-Christians, again, are, are in a church gathering, and they. And here's where it really gets mysterious. You, you think about in the Old Testament, people like King Saul, the first king of Israel, right? He, he prophesied for Samuel 10, Verse 11, he prophesied and yet he ended up rejecting God. Or in the New Testament, think of one of the 12, Judas, right? Judas, he was with Jesus and with the other 11. He went out and performed miracles. He cast out demons. He was part of that group in Matthew 10. And yet he fell away, rejected the Lord, betrayed him there is a sense that people can be in proximity and can participate in, and maybe even in some ways manifest evidence of the Spirit and and not be genuine. Jesus even said in Matthew 7, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And I will say, I never knew you. So it's mysterious, but, but people who aren't genuine Christians can give evidence of miraculous things. We'll leave it there. Number four, In verse 5, it says, they have tasted, again, there's that word, experienced the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, you could think of the Israelites in the wilderness. The scriptures here in Hebrews, back in chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, talk about how this nation, they all experienced God's miracle of bringing them out of Egypt we I mean, think about that for a minute. They experienced the, the, the judgment on the Egyptians, right? And the plagues. And then the, the miraculous parting of the water. And they went through on dry land. And then God took out the Egyptians. They saw that. They experienced it. But yet it says that with most of them, God was not pleased. And, and many rejected. So people taste the goodness of God and his word, the powers of God, but they might not be genuine Christians. There, there's a often a close linking between God's word and his power, and we've seen that in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13, the Machairah passage, for you who know what that is. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, Machairah. God's word is living and active, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's a linking between God's word and his power. So then verse six, the final description needs to be understood as a culminating experience, right? So these... These tasted and experienced and were part of. And then it says, verse 6, and then have fallen away. And remember, it's impossible for these, it says then, to be restored again to repentance. And then it says, why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's kind of a picture of what was happening literally when Jesus was on the cross he was lifted up he was crucified and people were ridiculing him and mocking him now this this phrase it is impossible <laughs> to restore them again to repentance so much debate surrounding what this means is it really impossible for an apostate to come back again really well some would argue it's only impossible for us nothing's impossible for god and that's even what jesus said speaking of of people of wealth Jesus said it, that that it's impossible for for them. In the in the reference, he says it's harder for a rich person to to come to saving faith. And he uses this analogy of going through the eye of a needle. Uh, a, a camel can go through easier. And 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 so the disciples say, well, then who can be saved? And then Jesus says, it's impossible with man. We we can't do it. But but God can do it. God, it's possible. So some say, well. It's impossible for apostates themselves to be restored again, but it's not impossible for God. Maybe that's what our author means. Others say, no, well, it's impossible as long as the apostate refuses to repent. And then, of course, others say it's, it's simply a state that it's genuinely impossible for a true, as, as I said, apostate to come back. Uh, one thing I, I would have a note here, I thought this was so, so good. This little technical, bear with me, put your thinking caps on. If they've been taken off, put them back on. Um, in, in this verse here, the writer switches to the present tense. So he's been speaking in, in, in the uh, aorist tense, but when he gets to these phrases of uh, speaking of... Uh, I want you to see this. In verse 6, in the middle of the verse where it says, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding and then holding him up to contempt. At that point there's a switch in in grammar to, to a present tense form. And so it may be it's just maybe one of those grammatical nuances that we can miss in English but maybe the original would have audience reading this hearing this in Greek would have heard that that if you in the present are are rejecting Jesus, right? But then you you stop Rejecting Jesus, you, you of course can be restored. But if someone is presently doing those things, of course it's impossible. If you are rejecting Jesus, no, you, you can't be restored until you repent and stop rejecting Jesus and stop holding him into contempt. Then you, you can, of course, return. So maybe that's what the author has in mind. While someone is actively rejecting, of, of course at that point they can't be restored uh, again could be that as well. Again, books and books and articles and journals and, and conferences have been written on, on all of this. The Apostle Paul in Romans 1 speaks of a certain kind of rejection where, where God gives a person over. Those are hard words. Listen for a minute to Romans 1, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a debased mind. And he uses those same words in verse 24 and 26. God gave them over, gave them up. That's a warning passage. What? Again, difficult, frightening, sobering. But there's hope. There's hope. Again, as I, as I said already, if a person is wrestling with I've been wandering from God, but now like the prodigal story that Jesus tells, I'm going to come back. There's hope for a person who who comes back. We don't have God's omniscience. We don't know if a person is going to repent and turn if they are a true apostate who can't be restored again. Of course, it says who continue to crucify Jesus, right? That's happened and and so on, you know. And a person who rejects and rejects is not literally crucifying Jesus again, but it's, it's like they are. There's hope. And, and ours is to simply pray. And that's, again, one of my applications, but I, I want to say it now. When we see someone leave the church, the covenant community, and reject, we need to pray. Oh, God, may they not be an apostate. May they not have fallen away. Bring them back. Woo them back. May, may your kindness lead them to repentance, as Paul says in Romans. We, we need to pray. There are people, and maybe some of you are people who have had periods of rebellion and resistance, but you've returned, and we should always have hope. Like we, again we saying, let the prodigal come home. Let's pray for that. That a person wouldn't persevere as an apostate, but would in fact return. He then gives an analogy very quickly, verses seven and eight. Uh, related to this. He says, Land that is drunk rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if that same land bears thorns and thistles and no crop, it's worthless and near to be cursed and its end is to be burned. Now, most of us, not all of us, most of us, um, for us, farming is a hobby. For some of us, it's not. I don't farm at all. I appreciate that others of you do and that grocery stores sell what others farm and, and, and so on, right? We're used to frozen vegetables when we need some vegetables. We're used to, you know, canned and preserved things. And again, we get to go and buy and get fresh things. But those of you that farm, you you understand this. But for these hearers, they, they got this right away. For them, like this was life for a land to produce crop. And if a land didn't, if for whatever reason this rain fell and nothing happened, that land was cursed, there's something wrong with it, bad soil, adobe, you know, I don't know, like no good, right it's not not good for anything and so he's just making this analogy like like this is a picture if a person is is in, in sharing in and and tasting all these things and and they continue to reject that that's giving evidence of of something so this This warning, this warning of the danger of apostasy leads our preacher, though number two, to give a comforting word of reassurance. And we need it, I need it this morning. So look with me briefly at verses nine to 12. Listen to his tone. Though we speak in this way, though though we give you this warning, yet in your case, beloved, this is the only place our author Uses that word, beloved, dearly loved ones, friends. Though we speak, though we warn, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. There's that word, better. Jesus is better. He's talked about that. Jesus is better and greater. And we're going to keep seeing that. Here, he's confident that for this congregation, they're, they're not those apostates. You know, beloved, no. We're sure of better things in your life, things that... Lead or belong to salvation, and then he, he gives this description he says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. now we, we might think why didn't he say something like, God is not unjust as to overlook your your profession of faith, your receiving of the gospel Why, why does he say? that God is not unjust to overlook your work and how you serve. Well, we, we need to be reminded that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but genuine saving faith never remains alone. A person who has been saved by God's grace through faith gives evidence of it, and the Scriptures speak of that. The, the Scriptures speak all over the place, like this in 1 Thessalonians one three. Paul says, we remember before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this was a common way for the, the writers to understand we aren't saved by works, but, but we are saved for works. And we saw that at the start of our year. If you remember Ephesians 2.10, we are masterpieces, we are, we are his workmanship, the work of a master craftsman created in Christ for good works. Finally, the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish. That's the word we saw last week, to be sluggish or to be lazy. So that you may not be sluggish and lazy, but in fact, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, be serious about your walk with the Lord. Not, not serious and gloomy, but, but you know, like, like take your faith in a serious way. Desire to grow and to pursue and to follow Jesus. Until the end, he says, that is, persevere amidst trials and tribulations and hardships. Keep following Jesus. Remember, this is a warning. Don't turn. Jesus is greater. And be imitators of others. Have others in your life. And of course, Hebrews is going to go on later to have that hall of faith, the great saints that we can look to as well. But we have others in our life who are maybe older in the faith, maybe younger too, but who are persevering. And we can look and and their faith encourages. And and we need that. We need, as the proverb says, to have iron sharpen iron. uh, Let me read this quote from, one more quote from Michael Kruger and then I'll conclude He says, speaking of these final verses here today, personally, I'm not thinking about being the winner of the race, right? This this race of faith. He says, I just want to finish. (laughs) That's the perseverance we're being called to, right? This isn't a call to win, to be the first. If apostasy is giving up altogether, then the opposite of apostasy is not getting a gold medal, but finishing. Finishing. And to say with the Apostle Paul one day, I have finished the race. Anyone that runs a marathon knows, I mean, only a very few win or or win their age bracket or whatever. The goal is to to finish, to complete it. If you train for a 5K, 10K, or the real deal, right? you, You are running, not to necessarily win, but to finish. And that's the call here. So church, in conclusion then, pray Pray, pray, pray for your sanctification. Pray that you would not turn away. Pray for God to continue to, to grow you, right? As, as Paul says in, in Philippians, uh, he says, um, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Pray for that work of God to be done and that we would cooperate with him. But pray for others too. Pray for those who have walked away that they wouldn't be apostates. And then finally, and with this, we'll get ready to to sing one more time. We need to remember Jesus. He is greater. He is better. We need to keep our eyes on him as we're going to hear in Hebrews 12 2. fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, author, perfecter of the faith. He's greater than anything, greater than, yes, all the Old Testament things, but he's greater than whatever the world offers, those things that the world is enticing us to reject God and and start to follow. No, Jesus is greater. He's greater. We need to remember that and keep our eyes on him. Something greater has come. Jesus said that himself. And he has come and he lived a life we can't live and he died in our place. He then rose and now he's at the right head of the father as our advocate. And he's the one that says, I'm greater. Look to me, follow me. Let my grace sustain you in this, this race, this walk of faith. Don't apostate. Keep your eyes on me, I'm greater. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a heavy text, I know, this morning, but we need to hear warnings, just like we drive and see signs on the road that warn us of things. We, we need those as we navigate literally around town, but we, we need these sign markers in life too. And may this today be for most of us a call to persevere and to keep our eyes on Jesus. But I pray, God, if there are some who have been flirting with leaving you, leaving the faith, may this call them back. May your kindness and your goodness lead them to repentance. Thank you for being greater, Jesus, being our Savior. In Jesus' name.